So welcome. It's good to see so many folks out here at the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs on such a cold night. Minus 21. You are indeed a hearty bunch. So welcome. Glad to see so many folks out here to hear Stacey's important message. Uh, one quick announcement is that this session is being recorded, so be on your best behavior. I am Kevin Powell. I'll be your session moderator. I am Secretary of the Board for the Lethbridge Fair Trade Society, also known as 10,000 Villages. And what I, I want to do an exercise with you first. You have a cell phone. I want you to hold it up. Everyone has a cell phone. Hold it up, please. Look at it. Turn the ringer off. Put it back in your pocket. Oh, that's Stacy too, so hey. Uh, SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. And we'll be passing the bucket around for a little bit uh, at the end. I'd like to thank our partners, University of Lethbridge, for support, including the distribution of notices. And I'd like to thank Lethbridge Public Library for providing the venue. This is the way the evening is going to transpire. Uh, the presentation is going to last about 50 minutes. That's five zero minutes. We'll follow by a refreshment break and then question period for 50 minutes after that. I'd like to announce or introduce our presenter, Stacy Taves, is a co-founder of Level Trade Level Ground Trading, a, uh, a direct fair trade company based out of Victoria, British Columbia. Since 1999, Stacy has traveled across North America, educating and engaging audiences about fair trade, sustainability, and ethical consumer choices. As you will find out, as I heard last night, that Stacy is a dynamic and inspiring speaker who is passionate about social justice. He has quickly become one of fair trade's leading advocates, encouraging critical and independent thought about our everyday purchases and how they affect the people and the communities that help make the products we buy. So, without further ado, Stacey Case. So I guess if it's being recorded, I have to be in my best behavior too. You do. Okay. Welcome. Welcome here, each of you who's come. I'm going to basically look for your input on what direction to take at the start here. Because if we've got two bouts of 50 minutes together, which is quite a chunk of time, and thankfully with some coffee and a break in between, we can do this a few different ways. I, I really enjoy being interactive through a presentation. And rather than stockpiling questions and discussions till later, if you're open to it, I'm wondering if we can do kind of two interactive sessions. If that's generally OK. I'll take that, as, that nod as a yes and silence as disregarded. <laughs> um, secondly, I'm just wondering where to go. I, I have a couple different presentations that I could do. I don't know if you've heard me speak somewhere in Lethbridge in the last day, so I'm not sure if there's people looking for something different than what they've heard already, because I've spoken three times in the last 24 hours here in town. Um, I actually did nine in 24 hours in Regina a couple weeks ago. Um, maybe I'm fueled by cold. It was minus 45 then. <laughs> um, so I could do something along the lines of a presentation I often do to students about ethical consumer choices that I think works in any context in terms of getting people breaking down how to make what I call the anatomy of an ethical consumer choice. I can talk about the history and original intent of the fair trade movement and what needs to be done to correct what I think is a pretty severely off-course movement right now. And I can also give a presentation on kind of the direction and approach that our company, which we started 14 years ago, has taken. We have producer groups in um, 
five different countries, ten different producer groups we partner with, and we currently are purchasing annually the output of about 2,300 farming families. And I can talk to you about the approach of our core values and how we do sourcing and how we've tried to model what we believe fair trade was intended to be on the ground as an everyday business. So ethical consumer choices, the history and original intent of the fair trade movement, how a business is seeking to be focused on sustainability and everyday living out a fair trade mandate. I'm willing to take votes. I don't know how to get your feedback, but I'm trying to sh I can probably do two of those tonight, probably not three. Um, so I'm just wondering where's a good place to start. I'm, whoever's the loudmouth can kind of swing the crowd. First one and the third one. So talk about ethical consumer choices and talk about how we run our business. I could gladly do that. Does that sound reasonably okay with anybody? And why it's not working. And why it's not working? Why it hasn't taken off. It's not As a concept. Yeah. Well, perfect. I'm going to use like the first two slides of presentation number two. And then I'll go to number one and number three. So we'll, we'll nail his point first. And then we'll do first and third. So let's try that. Okay. Well, I'll start off by introducing myself a bit and a little bit about where I'm coming from. Our company's name is Level Ground Trading. And uh, I've been married for coming on 19 years to Lori. We do an annual surfing vacation because we're from Vancouver Island. We go up to Tofino on the west coast. And so some of these photos are taken from there. We have a little three-year-old. We have three kids who we've adopted over the years from an orphanage in Haiti. And the oldest is 15 and the youngest is eight. And uh, it's been very much our intent to approach life to kind of question what's typical. I wouldn't say that we are seen as being against anything. I certainly don't want to set my life direction based on being known as a person who's opposed or oppositional to the way things generally are. But I really encourage critical thinking and questioning in my day-to-day -day life and for my kids as well. And I just find so many people, not just young adults, but often old adults as well, which I might be nearing that direction. My kids noticed the other day my beard's more gray than brown now. Um, people get trapped into jobs, into certain directions or courses in life, and they don't feel happy with where they're at. Things might be secure, but they're boringly predictable. And they're not feeling very stimulated or feeling like they're doing a lot of good with their day-to-day -day activities. And my wife and I, through different courses of experiences before we met each other, had both personally resolved that when we married, we'd build a family through adoption. So the little guy who's three was a bit of a surprise to us because we intended this would be the only way it'd work. But I really was struck by that early on that I really have never met anyone who's purposely chosen adoption as a first course. And it just seems that a lot of choices that people make in our society rarely are contrary to what most of the others make. Not on a purpose to be contrary, but just to question the status quo. Our cat's got a little kitten for Christmas named Jellybean. And we have a dog named Soda Pop who is very renowned for jumping fences. We've actually got a five-foot fence in our barn, and he can clear it. So he's uncontainable. And we have chickens. And we do quite a bit of organic farming and grow a lot of berries and fruits. And right now, we've got lots of garlic and leeks in the ground and things like that that we can harvest through the winter. And we, we work hard on producing a lot of food. So just a few thoughts on the history of the fair trade movement. And this is it. The group, the Quakers pushing hard for what they called free produce almost 200 years ago. And the idea of free produce was someone was free who was producing the product, as opposed to someone who was enslaved who was producing the product, which meant that when you brought to market these items, you had to calculate in a true cost of labor. Not a popular notion back almost 200 years ago that you would actually pay people 
a living wage for the work they did. And the Quakers weren't seen to be a popular movement because they were urging that slaves wouldn't be enslaved, that they would be dignified and paid fair prices for the work they did. And that's clearly, in my mind, in North America, the start of the concept of the fair trade movement, which didn't get traction. You have to fast forward 100 plus years to see a group like MCC that founded what was first called Self-Help Crafts, which morphed into what's now known as 10,000 Villages with about 50 stores across Canada. And they started out predominantly with handicraft products that were handmade, preserving indigenous cultural skills, using products and raw materials that were close and nearby. And post-World War II, there was a lot more awareness of what was going on globally. People were seen with great skills and abilities, but no market access. So self-help crafts was put out there as an idea that would provide marketplace and exposure for these people's crafts so that they could have a livelihood. And if you trace that, it moved quickly into world shops as they're known in Europe. And it, there's over 3,000 world shops in Western Europe. There's about 200, 10,000 villages stores in North America. Coffee didn't come on until 1988 between the Netherlands and a group of Mexican farmers. The person who was the spearhead behind all this was Francisco Vanderhoef Boersma, who is seen mostly now as a critic of the movement. He still lives and resides as a coffee farmer in Mexico. His roots are Dutch. And the main premise behind fair trade coffee was get rid of brokers. The Mexicans called them coyotes. If brokers could be gotten rid of and a relationship could be struck between a consuming community and a producing community, what would be born would be what they called alternative trade. Alternative would be, you know, a break from the norm of conventional trade. It would be a new way of relationally trading. There would be dignity brought to the producing community and clear awareness on the part of the consuming community of what impact was happening back where the farmer and the field were placed. So that's kind of a start to the idea of fair trade. And I think if I was to say one more thing, I would say that with coffee especially becoming popular as a fair trade product, there's been a lot of companies who've made money on coffee for dozens of years, and they don't want to miss the ethical option as well. So they offer fair trade coffee as well. But unfortunately to do that, they continue doing what they've done best, which is roast and access markets, not import and do shipping and logistics and trade. So they've left the movement of the coffee and the original purchase of the coffee to brokers, thus undermining the whole original movement of the fair trade direction. So most brokers use prim move primarily boatloads of conventionally grown, conventionally traded coffee, then some conventionally traded with an organic premium coffee because it's organically grown, and then some coffees that are double certified, both fair trade and organic. And roasters pick and choose over the phone off of menus they see on websites, and they buy an offering sometimes from, from a broker of 20 or 30 different countries of coffees, and they look like real global superpowers as little roasters. And they just buy a few sacks of coffee at a time. It's very low, um, very low risk from a cash flow perspective running a small business and they offer as much ethics as their consumers are looking for. A little bit of organic, a little bit of fair trade, the bulk of it being neither. As the market grows more open to fair trade and paying more money, then they start offering that. So my main point on coffee is that traditional, still to today, coffees that are moved are moved by brokers, and they violate, even when they're sold as fair trade, the original premise of the fair trade movement being founded for coffee, using brokers who were supposed to be gotten rid of. So that's just kind of an opening up, I guess, of of where I see things at right now. And please, if you've got questions or comments, don't wait till the end. Just jump in whenever. Let's do a little bit of a 
a fair trade presentation on making ethical consumer choices? Yes. Sure. And I'll talk about that then in the presentation after the break about how we do a direct trade model because we're the, the importer roaster packager of the coffee that goes through the 10,000 villages stores. Yeah, good point. Now this is a presentation I started working on in 1999. And every year I've evolved and changed it and tweaked it to try to address most of the pressing questions that I found in crowds of students wherever I traveled across the country who were trying to figure out how to make better choices in the marketplace but didn't know where to start. Many people want to live out their values when they shop, but often recognize that the reality is the bulk of everything in the store is made in China. And how does it work to enter the marketplace when that's what I'm offered and there's little else but that? And I think a point to consider, and this is, so this is kind of structured from the perspective of anywhere from a grade six to a second year university student, because I don't really change much in my presentation between a 12-year-old and a 20-year-old. Basic concepts, basic ideas, a premise of fair trade is your mom telling you as a toddler in the sandbox, be nice to the little boy who's sharing trucks with you in the playground. And if you guys decide to swap toys as you head out home, make sure that both of you are happy with what you got. That's a fair trade. It's not a heavy concept. It's just that when it starts being globally traded commodities, people start to make it more complex at times than it needs to be. There's a lot of layers and complexity to it. But unfortunately, in looking at it, people often miss it the basic premise. There's a person behind every product. You miss that point, you miss out on the whole idea of fair trade. So working with the premise that globalization is an unstoppable force, there's a lot of push in the food economy for eating local on a 100-mile diet, but we live in reality in 20 below zero temperatures here. You do anyway. <laughs> I fly back to Victoria on Saturday. We did have a foot of snow two days ago, though, so we're kind of kind of sharing the same experience, but we just have our show for a few hours usually. You enter a shopping center, a grocery store, and you shop the world. The tags on all the products suggest that there's products being brought from 20 or 30 countries. And I like to ask students, you know, what is it that's been the trend? If you could look back at what your grandparents had available to them to buy in stores, then what your parents had available to them to buy in stores, and now look through the course of your lifetime over the last 10, 15, 20 years, what's steadily changing? Well, there's more products available, they're coming from further away, there's very little information about how they were made, how people are treated, they'll note all of those things. There's a general push for things to come from farther afield with less information available than ever before. Globalization lets us be warm and cozy at home but shop the world at the same time. So I ask them, why do, you buy, why do your parents buy products and not buy other products? whether they're shopping for a new vehicle or a Blu-ray player or a bottle of ketchup. What are the reasons that make them choose one brand over another brand? And there's a host of reasons, and I, I throw that question out to you. What makes you buy one product over another? There's no wrong answer here. Pardon me? Value. Brand. Price. Price. What do you mean by price? The best price for what you consider to be valuable. You're cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's the number one answer that all kids give defining how their parents shop. My parents shop for cheap prices. Made in Canada. Made in Canada. Taste. Taste, sure. Good ingredients. Good ingredients. There's hosts of reasons.
as with most crowds, even big assemblies, rarely does anyone say ads or marketing. Most people don't acknowledge that ads or marketing have a significant influence on their or other people's choices to buy products. But when you think that in your mind there's probably like a ladder, a tiering or prioritization, I say coffee, laundry detergent, minivans, two or three brands pop to mind right away that are at the top, and others that are way out there saying, hey, think about us, don't even exist. In your mind, you don't think of them. Some companies have been far more effective than others at lodging in your mind as opposed to the person sitting to your left or right. And that brand for them is the first one that comes to mind. And the company that gets top of mind status in the most people's minds has the best chance of cornering the market. But I never hear Canadians even in their first five choices in a group say ads. Which is proof of how effective they are. Because they're doing their work and we're not even thinking of that as triggering our decisions. But I try to point out to students that out of every hundred, sorry, out of every billion dollars that Reebok takes in in revenue, they spend 500 million in ads and marketing and endorsements. So you buy a hundred dollar pair of shoes, you just spent 50 bucks on ads. If you put a pie chart of where their money goes, the biggest piece of the pie is marketing and ads. Companies remain convinced that marketing matters more than anything else they do. With our own brand, the brand that we don't sell in 10,000 villages, but we sell in other stores, we saw our brand starting to stale as a company over a couple of years. The packaging wasn't working for us. We were doing so many good things as a company, but weren't getting those messages out onto the packaging. We got a new packaging manufacturer, redesigned our package. We didn't change the price. We didn't change the size. We just changed the look and feel and texture of the package. And we changed the messaging on the package about what we've always been doing since we started. And we took a year to do that design and transition. It cost us $200,000 as a company. And we launched it April 1st last year. We had been out of the past 18 months prior to that, flat, up 2% or down 2% for 18 months straight. We dropped the new brand into the marketplace and our first month out we were 7% up, then 10% up and it started to grow right away. I've never been a big fan or student of marketing. It blew my mind. How quickly the exact same product produced by the exact same company, packaged differently, sold so much better. And it's gaining steam. This new look for us is almost a year old now, and our January and our February were 22% up in January, and we're 23% up so far in February, over the same year last year, because last year we hadn't launched our new brand in January and February. So it's still our first year for those, those products. It's been amazing to us, so, but, but it's something that people typically don't think of. So I get all the feedback from the students, and usually it comes out kind of like this, low prices and convenience and influential ads, etc. Yes? Can I pictures of your old and new packaging? Uh, I have some of the new in my next presentation. Okay. Yeah. And what, what I try to get people to realize is that, and this isn't wrong, it's natural because we're shopping for ourselves when we shop, there's a common theme to all this. <laughs> it's me. How much will it cost? How will it taste? How will I look? How will people think of me? How will I be perceived? How am I really marketing myself? How am I thinking about myself? How much money will it cost me? We ask all those questions, and that determines in many ways the world that we shape around us. Because if you go and ask people, well, how often do you ask about how other people's lives are affected who are in a field or a factory producing that product? Or how often do you think about the impact on the environment where that product is produced? And how much does that impact your choice as a consumer 
Most people have that very low on their list. These are the top ones. So we talk about that. What are some of the challenges to fair trade succeeding and us making ethical consumer choices? The number one oppositional activity that I engage in every day is I shop for cheap prices. And so long as I shop primarily for cheaply priced products, I'm an enemy of the fair trade movement, just like the Quakers sensed it promoting free produce back in 1827. Cheap doesn't create good worlds. It doesn't create communities. It's, if, if I'm making something and you're buying it, I don't want you to be thinking of cheap first. Right? If it's your job on the line, cheap's not the first thing you want customers to be shopping for. It's very hard for us to jump into someone else's sandals and say what matters in a place where I want to live. Now, oh, if they're in Indonesia and I never have to meet them, then let's shop cheap. But if it's in my own community, and I'm the farmer, or I'm the artisan, or I'm the producer, I don't want people to shop cheap. But we want the most, and we want to get it for the least. Working on a general premise that no one will just come out and say, but with an underlying belief system, if I have more, I'll be happier than if I have less. And if we can't see the flaws in our psychology, and that we're actually living a lie, contrary to what we say in our values, we'll raise our kids saying, having more is not key, kids. You need to be happy with what you have and learn contentment. And then you live contrary to that. You go off to work and leave them in daycare. See, when I explained to people that I didn't get my daughter, for instance, till she was three, and it took me three and a half years and $10,000 to go through the process for her adoption, and I explained to them, you know, she was just learning to speak Creole when I got her. She'd been raised on the streets by a mother who didn't have a house. She has scars on her body, and I don't know the history of those scars. Very malnourished. A lot of effect on basically connecting with adults that I see still as part of her life. And I know as I get her at a, a week before her third birthday that in my society, by the time she's six, she's supposed to be out of my care for most of the hours that she's awake. Do you think it's a good choice for me to A, put her in care and go to work, or B, that I should stay home with her and be her dad? Everyone agrees that I should definitely stay home. Is it less important if I got her at two? How about if I got her at one? At what point do I decide that cherishing my child is proven most by being with her? But we live contrary to what we say our values are. And this is what gets us down the road at age 40 and 50 and says, I don't like where my life has gone so far. Because we don't question status quo. So, consumers want the most, but they want to pay the least for it. So shopping carts get replaced by Costco's flat deck trucks. And we go through massive aisles that are loaded, not by people, but by forklift. And we needed one bottle of ketchup, but it's a three-pack that cell wrapped together. And the bigger the bottle, the bigger the lid, hence bigger the hole in the top. And when you hit your plate with that ketchup, it's like a blast from a pressure washer. And you eat way more ketchup than you would have if you just bought a 500 mil bottle. Because the bigger it is, the more you squeeze out of it every time you handle it. And our whole life is moving in that direction. But we justify it because we paid so little for it. And the cheapness of it validates the overconsumption. I tried to explain to my kids the idea of pop shop or pick a pop as a kid. Where as a family of four, we would stay home and rent a VCR machine, a VHS machine, and plug it in, and our family of four would share a 700 mil bottle of pop. 
which is smaller than a big gulp or a Slurpee now that any one kid buys at a time. They can't grasp that four people shared one bottle. That's smaller than a single serving today. What's changed? Lots has changed about what we see as value. Quality of ingredients and in food steadily goes down. Portion sizes go steadily up. African American heritage males in the U.S. consume more than 50% of their calories every day from carbonated beverages. In some communities today, you're looking at 10-15% incidences of diabetes. When I was in Winnipeg speaking a couple weeks ago, it was front page news about how the Ministry of Health is recognizing there that in five more years, they will never, no matter what they do on the trajectory they're headed, be able to collect enough taxes to pay for the health care of all the diabetics in their province. Because people are eating crap, but they're getting it for cheaper than ever before. Because we subsidize corn, which subsidizes sugar, which puts cheap sugar into our hands, but no one will subsidize carrots or broccoli. This is another talk, so I won't go into eating sustainably. There's reasons why I grow my own vegetables. <clears throat> While we're wanting the cheapest price, we buy from and invest in companies who want higher profits. We don't want them to profit off us as consumers, but if we invest in them, we want them to make more profit than ever before. Again, a pretty sneaky <laughs> polar opposite view. And so I ask students, you know, if you want to spend less, or your parents seem to by their behavior, but the companies you're shopping at want to make more money off you in 2011 than they did in 2010, what tactics are they going to have to use? Are they going to have to trick you to make more money than last year? Because I thought your, company, your parents are motivated by being cheap. How will companies get more money out of your parents' bank this year than last? What are some of the things they could do? Let's talk about that, guys. Reduce the size, yeah. Keep the price the same. Maybe shave off 5 or 10%. Maybe they won't notice. New package. <laughs> Cheaper source of production, so you can shave off social costs or shave off shave off environmental costs. Put a little more into advertising while they're paying a hell of a lot less production. Sure. Market more, gain more top of mind status. Cheaper additives. Lower quality, which is a great way of saving price at the point of manufacture. Pardon me? More yeah. Build in obsolescence to things or try to sell people a two-year warranty that's almost as expensive as the product itself. Go try to buy an appliance at Future Shop. They'll try to sell you the warranty before you've bought the appliance. It's, it's designed to break down. Tell you that you have to have things that five years ago didn't exist. Right? How many students at school now have a personal music player and a cell phone. And they're supposed to be at school to learn. And neither are required along the list of school supplies. It doesn't say ruler, eraser, cell phone, iPod. But it's presumed as essential. Right? These are huge factors in terms of what takes money out of our bank accounts and creates profits for businesses. There's a strong move away from simplicity. Yeah. So while we've got, yes? And you can always provide company financing at increasingly ruinous rates. Oh, yes. I mean, everybody goes into debt. So offer financing, you can make some great money on making a few points off every loan you do. So here's the continuum. You've got lower price-focused consumers, higher profit-focused corporations, 
and the equation I suggest yields forgotten producers. I work with an underlying formula in my head all the time for how product gets to me. You take an input of a natural resource for your raw materials, you add a labor component that includes poverty, and it equals profit and waste. And that's, that's pretty much how the world works in churning out product to us. You take natural resources, you inject some poverty with it, and you get a product, and you get profit, and you get waste. In 2015, the national government of Canada has mandated EPR, Extended Product Responsibility. Any product that a company sells us will be responsible for the life of that product and its packaging post-consumer. Imagine what will happen. If you're selling a can of soup, you're responsible as the manufacturer of the can that the soup was in after someone bought the can of soup. And they're going to have to find whole new ways to manage reclamation, recycling, storing, and transport, and reclaiming energy from materials that to this point, businesses have just said, well, you bought it. Now it's yours. Do you want a warranty? And it'll, it'll change things dramatically. And stores, especially grocery stores, are already resisting this. Because they don't want to have to pay their staff and have warehouse space that's overhead to store and sort and collect all these things which won't have an added value back to the store itself. Because that's the most likely depot for all these EPR products that have to be brought back by the manufacturer to be responsible for. So it's going to be an interesting dialogue where that goes. I don't want to go into that now. I want to stick with this idea as a fair trade proponent or advocate that you've got half the world's people living on less dollars into their lives than a typical Canadian household has set aside per pet. An average Canadian household with a pet spends 500 bucks per cat or dog per year. Half the world's people don't live on 500 bucks per year. So, I ask students to vote with a hand raised up. Do you typically enter your day, head off to school, and view yourself as rich? I've got everything I need. Christmas is better than I could imagine. When it came to Christmas, I couldn't even think of an item to put on the list because I have everything I need. I'm so wealthy. Are you entering your life day-to-day that way? Are you entering your life day-to-day thinking of yourself as middle class? Or do you view yourself as poor and without in so many ways? You can guess a typical Canadian sit-on-a-fence answer to this, right? What do most people answer? Middle class. I say, well, that's a sucker-punch question. I didn't tell you who to compare yourself to. So who did you compare yourself to decide you're in the middle of? Who, who do you believe has more than you? Try to find someone. And who has less? And what you find in is that when you ask people those types of trick questions, they compare themselves to their peers and their neighbors. So I said basically what you have is a bunch of rich people sitting in a room together, looking at one another, agreeing we're all middle class. Because we can say, well, she took a bigger holiday, but he's got a bigger vehicle, and they've got a smaller house. So you can find someone on every side of you who's got a bit more or a bit less, and therefore we all justify ourselves as in the middle. But we don't shop for products that are made by our neighbors. They don't work in fields producing our food. They're not working in factories churning out our shoes. So why do we compare our status of wealth to our neighbors? Well, we shop from people distant from us geographically who are the poorest of the poor and take advantage of them by promoting let's find the cheapest price when we go shopping. What a double standard. We live in this more global than ever before world and we compare our status only to our neighbors 
who, along with ourselves, are in like the top 2 or 3% wealthiest on the planet. I think there's a very clear reason that keeps us safe in saying we're middle class. Rich people take advantage of poor people. I can't be rich, because that would make me responsible. Bill Gates is rich. There's other rich people out there, and they better be doing good things like Bill Gates is, because they're responsible, because they're so rich. And if we can just find a few really rich people to vilify or put all the blame or responsibility upon, we can slide back into middle class, and then we're not responsible. I think this is a mechanism to keep us feeling safe. <clears throat> but I try to encourage people to think that shopping's voting. Will you tell me when I've got five minutes left? Because I'll totally lose track of time. Thank you. Shopping's voting. And so when you consider the ten biggest economies in the world, half of them, more than half of them, are corporations, not governments. When you start realizing that you know, Microsoft handles more money every year than the government of Canada, Walmart's bigger than 150 of the world's 192 nations. Who's really calling the shots? Is it governments or is it corporations that have thousands of factories and millions of staff and hundreds of millions of shoppers spread all over the planet? Who's really got the power here? Is it, I need to wait till I'm 19 to vote and then I can really have a say? Or is it, as soon as I reach the candy counter and slap down a nickel, I do have a say? As soon as you can spend money, you're voting. And whoever's got the most money to spend has the most votes. So we're living in a totally stacked, fixed election. We're the fat people with multiple votes. And we don't take seriously that responsibility or that opportunity. Because whoever has more to spend has more influence. And if what I spend on dog food is more than what a family spends in a whole year per person, then I better take seriously this amount of money I have and the votes that go with it. I took my son, who was 12 at the time, my 15-year-old now, to Tanzania and Ethiopia to visit coffee farmers we buy from. It was pretty overwhelming for him. It was probably too much for him at times to try to grasp a family living in a circular home that has nine or ten members and their annual income is $300 for the whole family. Where there's feeding stations set up by aid agencies and people are dying. In a place where there's lots of food being grown but not fair disbursement of the food. And he's realizing that just what he spends on Slurpees in a year, as a middle-class kid in North America, is more than what a whole family has to live on for all their needs in another country. And until we can shake ourselves out of this belief that we're middle-class so that we're not responsible, we won't really take seriously that the money we spend is the money we have to influence. And companies are far more agile at responding to our requests and our expectations than governments ever will be. Governments know they've got four years till another vote is cast. Companies can't rest like that. They have to be far more active, far more responsive, far more thoughtful, and far more deliberate. My running joke is if we wanted an organically grown tofu running shoe that you could eat when you were done your jog, they would make it. Whatever you want, you name it, they'll make it. You just have to tell them you'll pay for it. And if you have enough demand, they will output it. We can't vilify companies and say they're bad. Shame on them. We've created the companies that are out there giving us exactly what we've wanted. Anonymous products that are inhumanely produced for the lowest price possible so we can buy more of it than ever before. That's a blind consumer's dream. That's what we've created. We can't blame someone else for that. So this is the premise that we've got to work with. Bring it back to a simple point. There's a person behind every product. His name's Kabede. 
He's an Ethiopian coffee farmer. He has three daughters and a wife, and with the amount of land he has, he can't make a living. We buy coffee from the cooperative that Kibete is a member of, but he's training to be a mechanic so that he can fix vehicles that people use to transport coffee out of the community because he thinks long-term that's a better gamble than just hoping that coffee prices do okay when he owns so little land. And technically in Ethiopia, you never own land because the government controls it all. He has access to farms so little land would be correct. If we can't connect the dots between a product we buy and the person behind it, then we live in a global confusion. And when that enters, I think it's very hard for us to feel that we can make a responsible choice because we don't even know what questions to ask to lead us to making a better choice. So I try to talk about a triple bottom line, which even in business schools today isn't being talked about as a premise. People are still talking about just getting into business to make money, and the bottom line is, you know, you take in your revenue, you deduct your expenses, and the rest is profit. That's the bottom line. It's like, well, what if you shaved costs, socially speaking? What if you didn't pay fairly for the treatment you made of the planet, environmentally? Because until you factored in the true social and environmental costs of your behavior, you can't really talk about true making money. If you moved your plant to another country and no one's watching your environmental devastation, you didn't make more money. You made someone cash your, basically pay your bills. You can't dump trash in someone else's backyard and say, look how clean my place is now, and make it sound like you've done a good job cleaning up. But this is typical business practice. And this is where very often a lot of charities and aid organizations do so much, mopping up after companies that haven't paid fairly. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what fair trade aims to do is change systems that have kept people poor and turn around the way that things have been working and accomplishing opportunity and independence and fair price when people ask questions, some transparency, upholding the rights of women and children, long-term relationships. And I'll talk about all this more when I talk about how our company approaches business respecting the environment, and educating fair trade. When fair trade is thought of as just a fair price or just looking for a logo to determine that it is a fair or not a fair product, and it doesn't really incorporate these different standards that are recognized globally as the standards for fair trade, then it's being far too simplistic at that point. We have very little money typically of our take-home income that we give to charity and aid. And I remember at one point when I was a new dad and my son was just past the age of two, we just brought him from Haiti, and we were coming into Christmas, and we decided as a family to do Operation Christmas Child, putting the gifts in the little shoe boxes for Samaritan's Purse, and they get sent to refugee camps and orphanages in different countries. How many of you have done that before, so you have a clue what I'm talking about, okay? And we're shopping at a Zeller store, and we're putting a variety of things in a box, and we found out actually that the boxes we were putting together were going to Haiti. So it was going right back to where we had just been to get our son, and typically in Haiti they end up in orphanages. We looked for a stuffed toy in the Zeller's aisle, and every single toy that was there said on the back on the little tag, Made in Haiti. And I'd been studying quite a bit before going to Haiti and reading about typical factory practices and wages paid for companies who purposely, based in the U.S., work the U.S. government to give them permission to pay less than half of the Haitian-mandated minimum wage. The minimum wage is two bucks a day. Often workers with four and five years in the same factory make less than a dollar a day. We're not talking per hour, we're talking per day. And the reason they get away with forcing companies to be allowed by the Haitian government to pay less than half the minimum wage is the U.S. uses aid money as the carrot 
you allow our businesses to come in and work over your people, and then we'll give you hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to look like the saviors. And they basically try to pay back wages that weren't paid in the form of humanitarian aid. Typical meal, that com- a typical toy that comes with a happy meal at McDonald's is made in Haiti, boosting some syndicated, marketed, you know, animated film or something like that. So in factories like this all over, products like this are being made. And so I've got my little kid in the buggy, and we're about to send this gift pack to Haiti, and I'm looking at a stuffed toy made in Haiti and realizing this could very well have been made by the parent whose kid is in the orphanage who's going to receive it. And I'm going to buy it from a for-profit and then send it back through a non-profit. This is a twisted world I'm working in. And it really made me start questioning in a new way where the money's going. Most of our money is going to profit-focused businesses, but we rarely hold them to the same standard that we would a non-profit. I don't know how many kids who I've talked to, because I've done a lot of fundraising for World Vision, and 30-hour famines are very popular events where kids go out and they're going to voluntarily go 30 hours without food, and they raise money and awareness for food security in other countries. And I don't know how many kids have come to me over the years about how they went to someone in their family asking for a donation while they were going to do the 30-hour famine, and the first question is, how much is going to go to admin? And the kid who's in grade six says, admin, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, how much is really going to go to the project? If I give you 50 bucks, how much is really going to make it to the hungry person in another country? And I think that's a great question. But do you ask that when you buy your shoes? Do you ask that when you buy your milk? Do you ask how the farmer or the field worker or the factory workers, how much they're going to get of what you paid, the way you would if you were donating to a nonprofit? We take this little bit of our money and then we just barely let go of it and we have all these ethical filters on it. But then when we land uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar mortgage with the bank, we don't look at what they're going to do with the money they make off our mortgage. We don't, we don't hold a fuel company to that standard. We don't shop for clothes with that standard. But boy, if this nonprofit's going to get a nickel off of me, I've got to know how much is going to administrative costs. So fair trade's working to change a system that often keeps people poor. So what I, how much time do we have now? Just so I have a sense. Oh, there's a clock. Okay. So what I want to do now is just, in closing, take, take people through, well, what are some things I could actually shop for that give me a sense of opportunity? Because when I started doing talks about fair trade, I found I could give them kind of the information or the groundwork for making better choices, but when they actually went shopping in the marketplace, there was no companies out there offering ethical products. I just had a lot of dirt to sling at companies doing bad things. And that doesn't really empower a person to go out and shop tomorrow and make better choices. It just makes them feel guilty and unsure of what to do. Well, the good thing is there's a lot more products available now that are ethically sourced than ever before, but it's in many ways, as always, buyer beware. Ask some really thoughtful questions rather than just simplistically thinking, it says fair it is. Well, how would you know that, and how would you check it out, and how would you question that a little bit? So, a product that comes primarily, but not only out of South America, who knows what that is, I ask kids. Do you guys know what that is? Ripe red coffee. But I get cranberries, grapes, cherries. It's rarely that a person will know that that's coffee, obviously. You take that outer red pulp off, there's two beans inside, you'd have to pick 2,000 of those cherries to get one pound of roasted coffee. A healthy tree that's kept two meters tall over a whole year will produce 10 to 15 pounds, 5 to 7 kilos of ripe red cherries. But that whole year's harvest will trickle down to be one roasted pound of coffee. One tree, one year, one pound. So if you drink two cups a day, it'll be 15 trees just for you. If you drink a pot a day, (laughs) 
You might have a small hillside with your name on it somewhere. So think carefully, because the amount of environmental and social impact that your buying choice makes on what's going on to the trees and the soil around them and how much labor is going into producing your daily habit, it's a big factor. When we started our business, we couldn't find any fair trade coffees available on the market. So I could just find stories about what wasn't fair. You know, mainstream brands like Nabob or Folgers that are both owned by what company? Kraft General Foods. Who owns Toblerone Chocolate, Kool-Aid, Jell-O, Tang, Kraft Dinner, Kraft Peanut Butter, Post Cereals, Nabisco Cereals, Mr. Christie Cookies, Mr. Christie Crackers. They own thousands of brands of food products. They're owned by an even bigger company. Philip Morris. Biggest seller of tobacco and beer in the world. Yeah? And my thinking is that if you're going to buy product, why don't you find the equivalent of the Wrangler that's more ethically sourced, that gets more than the nickel? Because typically on pants, half a percent of what we pay goes to labor. On other clothing like shoes and non-jeans, one to two percent of what we pay goes to labor. It's a pittance. It's mostly to marketing and transport and tariffs and taxes. So my suggestion is find the company that's doing more with the money you spend, getting more back into labor costs, finding businesses that have better and more progressive practices if they're out there. Because you're right, you don't want to just ditch the producer in hopes of helping the producer. You boycott a company, you take them from a crappy job to no job. That doesn't benefit things. The good thing also is that with scrutiny and good questioning and campaigns, companies who get flushed out have a lot harder time hiding than they did 10 or 15 years ago. And the most success has come about from university campuses. Because while they'll have an athletic program, say in the States, where they're a Nike-only or an Adidas-only school, a couple hundred million dollars a year will come into some universities in the form of scholarships from one of these brands. And while the athletes are setting up to make a pro career and getting their way paid, there's humanities departments on the same campus saying, well, where did all the product come from? And that's resulted in some really awesome boycotts and some really awesome communication campaigns that have been most effective with Nike. Nike's been very responsive when they know that they could lose a contract with a massive school. And it's typically the humanities department that launches something that says, you've got to tell us which factories make all the gear that come to our campus. That's going to be part of our relationship being a Nike school. And that's ended up unionizing Mexican factories in some cases. So you get one person alone and they go, I'm not sure about the Wrangler pants, but you get a campus of 50,000 students that's got multi-million dollar, multi-year deals with brands, and they say, we need something better and different than this. And you can do that as a small campus or a small office setting up a no-sweat policy as well, which I'll talk about in a bit. You get the group of 50 people buying a hoodie at once, and you get a no-sweat policy in place, and you start researching where your money's going to go, and now there starts to be a component that's really solid to your buying that never could have been there before as an individual. Does that cover it? Yes. So, good thing to know is that fair trade coffee is readily available. That's a shot of our Tanzanian product. We've got a whole host of different coffees available under the 10,000 Villages brand. You can find a great selection of fair trade teas at 10,000 Villages as well, mostly from just us. 
So typically coming from very different um, environments than coffee, which is small-scale farmer-grown, tea is usually large plantation-grown. The components related to fair trade for tea are often a lot more difficult to navigate than fair trade for coffee. It's often harder to find fair trade tea than fair trade coffee, but equally accessible if you go to a store like 10,000 Villages. I ask students, when you think about chocolate, what countries come to mind? What would be the countries that immediately, without deliberating on it, what countries come to your mind when you think chocolate? I heard a lot. I hear Ivory Coast. Ghana, Brazil. Peru. Colombia. So you guys are thoughtfully thinking cocoa. What do you think students say? They say Belgium and Germany and Switzerland. Because when it comes to Valentine's or Mother's Day and you're thinking about buying chocolate, it's some guy in an ad with a chef's hat on and a handlebar mustache stirring a big copper pot of hot, you know, molten chocolate going to be poured into a beautiful mold of an Easter bunny or a heart. And the challenge is that that's where a lot of people think of. They think geographically of Europe when they think of chocolate. So I say, well, where's the cocoa and the sugar came from? Well, obviously not Europe. So then they start naming the countries like you guys did. Because they're thinking about that then for the first time. West Africa produces the bulk of the world's cocoa. Cote d'Ivoire is by far the number one producer of it. And it's a region of the world that's got very little policing in terms of what's happening environmentally. The best book I've ever read on chocolate is called Bitter Chocolate, written by a woman who you typically hear in the evening on CBC Radio called Carol Off. There's an amazingly well-researched book called Bitter Chocolate. It's fantastic. And it really traces the ups and downs and the complexity of the cocoa production world and the politics and all the money behind the scenes that have gone on over the last number of decades, especially in Cote d'Ivoire. UNICEF estimates 250 to 300,000 children under the age of 19 bought and sold as slaves every year as cocoa plantation workers in West Africa. So I challenge students, so what's Halloween? You're already overfed. You never normally talk to your neighbors. You dress up in a weird costume. You go and bug them once a year, and they give you chocolate, which is mostly cocoa and sugar, which came from where? Not Belgium. Not Switzerland. This is a celebration in many ways of child slavery. That's a twisted holiday. Most people haven't thought of it that way. You buy a, a cheap gas station-type chocolate bar, and you can get two for a buck when you fill up. It's completely out of sight, out of mind consumption. It's cheap price. Fair trade chocolate's way more money because it's free produce. You're actually paying people for their work. It's family-owned plantations. Family-owned farms, rather, not large-scale plantations, where their kids stay with them rather than get trafficked across a border that's quite porous. They get bought and sold for 20 to 25 bucks Canadian on Saturday markets. You own a person for 20 bucks. It's pretty horrific. It's not on most people's radar when they shop for chocolate. But you've got companies that are entirely fair trade, like Divine, which is a worker-owned co-op out of West Africa, or La Siembra Co-op, which sells the co-op, the Coco Camino brand, and everything they sell is fair trade. Great examples of companies that do it well. Uh, there's great promotions for reverse trick-or-treating, which is the idea that you get a small fair trade chocolate, and you go out trick-or-treating, but when you end up on the doorstep of someone, you don't accept their candy, you give them one. And you promote the idea of how to ethically source your chocolate, and you promote a Canadian company that's selling fair trade organic chocolate. And gets people thinking on their doorstep that they possibly haven't thought about before. Talk about fair trade clothing, like No Sweat Apparel, which actually started with Nike 
workers in a factory in Indonesia asking for unionization, and Nike pulled the contract, and those 700 workers were out of a job, and No Sweat Apparel bought the factory. Nike doesn't own any factories, neither does Adidas or any big brands. They just contract, which means that one arm of a factory can be building for Reebok, while another arm of a factory is sewing for Adidas, and another arm is sewing for Nike. Simultaneously, three or four brands of products could be going through one building, and Nike can honestly say, it's not our workers who you're concerned about, because they don't work for us. They work for the contractor, who works for the subcontractor, who hires the people who work in the factory. And so if the subcontractor is not paying workers fairly, well, they're not our workers. We mandate that they pay the minimum wage, at least, and that they hire adults. And Nike's gotten better and better at this. I don't want to be trying to vilify them, but the fact is there's quite a few arm's length removed from the person working the sewing machine in a factory to the Nike brand. And it's structured that way on purpose. Don't own the factory. Allow yourself to be very agile and move around across different international borders. And at any one time, they over, have over 1,000 manufacturing facilities. So they can always be moving. So this, these 700 women got back in business unionized with no sweat apparel. Um, there's Just Shirts based out of Calgary employing a women's co-op out of El Salvador. Uh, Craig Kielberger, who presented at the uh, Southwest Alberta Teachers Conference this morning, talked about the Me to We clothing line, Canadian-made organic clothing, Me to We, and it's a really great nonprofit approach as well. So there's a lot of emerging ways to build clothes, certainly, that's more ethical. Talk about sports balls coming largely from Pakistan, where there's no minimum age, no minimum wage. This puts people in pretty rugged situations. There's fair trade sports balls now, started largely by a woman out of Victoria whose kids were playing soccer, and she started to research it. Wasn't impressed with that. This hires only adults in Pakistan, builds schools adjacent to each factory for their kids to get education. $2 from the sale of every ball goes to a microloan program that the adult workers can access. In countries like Germany, it's mandated by law that all soccer balls in community and school leagues must be fair trade. So this has major awareness in some countries and completely no awareness in others. And I've got to get talking about it so people know about it. You can obviously get your gifts at stores like 10,000 Villages, Great place to get one-of-a-kind things that tell a great story and connect you back to producers. So wrapping up this part of our time together before we go for a break, I recognize fair trade is just part of the solution to an otherwise globally complex challenge of why people are poor. There's a lot of reasons, but this is something I can do about it. Another thing I can do is think about living simpler, consuming less. Because a personal contentment without looking for and aspiring for more products is, I think, another key step in being more fair. I break all my questions down on my shop into these three categories. Think of a three-legged stool that's not tippy if all these legs are the same length. Producers, environment, local economy. You weight any one of those to the expense of the others, and you make usually not a very solid choice. This is equally a great way to shop for a job, I tell young people. If you wouldn't buy a product from the company, why would you work for them? If you're new out of school, you don't have a skill set really that you can talk about a deep resume, but you might have awesome values that you can sell yourself for. I'd much rather hire a person of integrity with a small skill set than a person with a broad skill set who doesn't have good values. Sell yourself. That can be a great point that really bolsters teens' confidence to go out when they start job shopping. Don't just drop your resume anywhere unless you're willing to basically help anybody make a profit. Help the people you believe in. Give your best to the companies that deserve it. When people can start fashioning questions this way, it totally changes how they look at things. A person who blindly says, well, I want to be supporting sustainable agriculture. Tonight's salad's going to have an organic tomato. I'm willing to pay five bucks a pound for it. 
So you buy the organic tomato and you feel good about it. And then you think, hmm, came 5,000 kilometers. So the diesel of the truck coming that far might have undone the good of the organic growing. Ugh. Grown in California, Mexican migrant labor challenges there. Socially, maybe the people weren't paid or treated very well. American company, so locally my economy got nothing out of this. So I maybe end up feeling that producers didn't get fairly treated. Environmentally, the trucking kind of eliminated the organic thing I was feeling so good about. And my local economy didn't get a positive spin-off on it because I bought the tomato at a national chain store and it came from a U.S.-owned plantation. Hmm. That doesn't mean don't buy the tomato. That means I've got a lot of thinking to do before I buy the next one. <laughs> and I don't want people to see it as just it's this or it's that. Because when you do, you miss the complexity. And what I try not to do is give people lists. And that's what everyone wants. Give me the list of the bad companies, I'll never shop there again. Give me the list of the good companies, they'll get all my money. Well, the good companies in my community might be different than the good ones in yours. Assuming narrowly that because they're big, they're bad is no more thoughtful or strategic than assuming because they're little, they're ethical. You're going to have to think deeper than that. And you've got to ask questions that work in your environment. Yeah? A good example of that, I just read recently that Walmart, of all things, uh, by the end of 2013, they have a goal of purchasing 30% of their produce locally. So that, you know, that's going to be a huge impact. It'll be huge. It'll be a positive one in that big company. Mm-hmm. And I'd say this is the biggest ethical dilemma we get found in if we really want to stick to values, is that if you take a multinational chain, 100 million shoppers a week, with the economy the size they have, who's established their market share by being largely unethical in their global sourcing, and then they add ethics and add ethics and add ethics, do they become ethical? And this, this is like, truly, this has to be a tension people wrestle with. They will clearly give us the cheapest priced local produce when they show up with it. They will. But what did they do to carve out the market share that got more shoppers in their doors than anyone else? Do you believe that where a company started is where it will end up, regardless of the path they take between the two points? Or do you believe that they truly have epiphanies where they change their value system, their philosophy is gutted and rebuilt, and they actually do it for the right reasons? And my point is that when the organic movement started, it was about no negative inputs into the environment, and that's what people started it for, and today it's about good nutrition for my body. People don't shop organic for the reason that the organic movement was started. And the more big business gets a hold of it, research something like Earthbound, and start to look at how it's manufactured. It's pretty overwhelming. The scale on which factory size, what appears to be an ethical company, works. And because it's big doesn't mean it's bad, but no more does because it's small make it good. And I just think people have to, we can't simply say it will be good because of this. There's so many layers to it. At one given time, there will be a boycott on Pepsi in one country and accolades thrown to them in another country because they'll have terrible human rights performance in one country and great ones in another. So you can't just reduce it to they're good or they're bad. Because they own KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. But they own every brand of chips that you eat, too. And so when you look at the <laughs> volume of corn, which is pretty much what their entire company runs on, because it's sugar and it's chips, then you've got to look at the ethics of the whole corn industry. And then you've got to wonder, well, should I be eating any processed food? Is this even a discussion? You know, <laughs> like, there's so many levels at which you can engage it. And so I think it's great to throw out different points of views so that we can be thinking about this and be challenged. Let's take a break.
and then we'll jump into another one later. I actually have a few oh, wind-up points. Quick, quick, quick. Sorry. So we're very wealthy. We have a lot of influence through our choices. Great places to start, I've mentioned already. And this is kind of my final point. I call it a 10% fair trade challenge. So you've never maybe heard about this idea before. This is a new way to think, new series of questions to break down ethical shopping. This year I'll take a step. 10% of what I spend will go to brands and businesses I believe in. Next year I'll make it 20%. The next year I'll make it 30%. In five years, half of everything I buy, I'll have thoughtfully sourced. And you grow it that way so you don't feel overwhelmed. That's the only way I feel that I can do it without feeling overwhelmed. And that way you can have a community of people working off of each other to learn how to do it better together. So I'll stop there. Sorry, Kevin, for hijacking you. Great, we're going to take about a 10-minute break, no more than 12 minutes. And um, there's uh, level ground coffee available uh, to, to try out what we're doing. So 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. Okay, and the topic is going to be the Tea Party movement and how did it affect the 2010 U.S. election. So that sounds, well, quite interesting. And uh, you can go to the SACPA website, uh, sacpa.ca, to listen to this and other former um, uh, presentations there. They have the audio, audio going and also a comment section to keep the conversation going. And, of course, no trolls or spam or anything like that, which you're a good bunch, I'm sure. All right. Stacey Caves, part two. Sometimes people are interested to know how the coffee is decaffeinated through a natural water process. When we started our business up, we agreed that to get decaf, we didn't want to uh, pay a multinational running the, the uh, Swiss water processing plant in Burnaby, just out of Vancouver. We wanted to give money to a company that was a little closer to home. So we um, partnered up with a... Uh, I'm away from the mic, that's why, sorry, I was just finding my spot there. So we work with a Colombian factory that's Colombian-owned to do the natural water decaf process, and they take green beans that are ready to roast, but we want them decaffeinated. So they get put into water, and then molasses from local cane sugar gets put into the water. And molasses, as a juice from the cane sugar, like all fruit and veggie extracts, has naturally occurring product in it called ethyl acetate, EA for short. And EA has a huge affinity chemical bonding to caffeine molecules. And so when you pour the molasses into the water bath, the caffeine automatically leaves the beans and joins the EA and floats up to the surface. So you get this molasses-y, thick, sugary, caffeine-laden substance that you skim off of the paddle. Then when they drain the water out of the bath, the beans get dried again. They look a little more brown and shriveled than they did before going in. Lab tests show us they're about 99% caffeine-free. And that molasses, sugary mixture with the caffeine, this is in Colombia, gets sold to Coca-Cola bottling in Colombia. And that creates the caffeine and the sugar for the Coke syrup. So the Coca-Cola syrup that's used in Colombia is, is sugar from local grown cane and caffeine from local grown coffee. Yeah. Okay, that's working. Is there a way we could turn down some of the lights right there? It looks like it's really hard to see the images compared to 
I don't know how much control you have over that. Oh, it's got a whole bank of light switches back there. Let's see if we don't get plugged into total darkness. So our mission's always been this, to trade fairly and directly with small-scale producers. We started in 1997. Fair is at times confusing to people because how do you decide what's fair? Provincial governments in our country set up minimum wages, but most people agree that they wouldn't want to live or try to live on that. It's not what we would prefer to use as a term, a living wage. It's just a minimum wage. You're not allowed to pay less than that. No one would go out and market their products as a Canadian manufacturer saying we've always paid minimum wage because that wouldn't be seen as a selling feature, right? Well, when fair trade prices are set, they're typically set for different products all in a, by an organization called FLO, F-L-O, Fair Trade Labeling Organization, which is based out of Germany. And FLO has set up product standards for 20 different items around the world. So one good question would be, well, how do you decide if it's fair if it's a product that isn't one of those 20 categories? Well, you've got to have some better systems to talk and think about it. For instance, when we started doing fair trade mangoes about seven years ago, the only global standards for fair trade dried mango were based on West African production, where the cost of labor is much less than Colombia, where our mangoes are grown and dried. If we had met fair trade dried mango standards based on West Africa, we would have been able to pay our workers one-third of what we chose to pay them in Colombia. And we would have been meeting the standard, because there's often not a regional dynamic associated with a fair trade price. The fair trade minimum for coffee is the global fair trade minimum for coffee. It doesn't recognize the dynamic of the market that it's way more expensive to grow it in Sumatra than it is in Nicaragua. So that's a challenge. If you're going to have true fairness, you're going to have to find a way to communicate what's fair on the ground, in the context of the community where the producers are living, who you're buying from. The challenge on the flip side to that is that if they make regionally dynamic fair trade pricing, they know it's going to mess up the more expensive countries for production. Everyone is going to look for the cheapest priced but still sounding ethical product coming out of, say, Nicaragua, and no one's going to buy fair trade Sumatran coffee because it's way more money. The good thing is the market's saving us from that right now. The world recognized fair trade minimum price is half of what coffee's actually trading for right now. There's such a shortage of supply and so much greater demand than supply that what's being paid for coffee, whether it's fair trade or organic or neither, is currently double what the recognized fair trade minimum is. So it's like your government saying minimum wage is 10 bucks an hour, but a job at Tim Hortons pays you 20 because that's just what the economy's doing here. That's what's happening with coffee right now. So regional dynamics aside, farmers are getting better money than ever before for their coffee, but the challenge is many farmers don't have any coffee at all because weather's been wreaking havoc on them. So there's a lot of dynamics at play. If you have coffee to sell, you're getting a great price for it. The challenge is many farmers don't. That's why the prices are so high. So trading fairly, we believe, needs to be more determined on the ground than just a group in Germany setting out a price. So that's a big part of our mission, is how we decide what's fair. Direct, as I alluded to at the start, has a lot to do with not brokered, no coyotes, having a relationship with the community. And for us, when we make orders, Oh, by the way, you did a great job with the lights. Thank you. That's perfect. Um, directly means for us no brokered relationships. When we buy coffee, we buy a container, 20 feet long, 8 feet high, and 8 feet wide at a time. And that holds about 40,000 pounds of beans. 250 to 300 sacks that weigh 60 to 70 kilos, depending on which country we're buying from. So this year we'll order about 20 to 22 containers of coffee. So 
maybe by next year we'll be buying a million pounds of green beans in a year. So when we, we make a purchase, we're, we're paying over $100,000 per container for beans. And we have an advance, just a 300-gram sample to determine whether we're going to buy that container or not as a representative of our purchase. So fair we've covered, direct we've covered, and small scale. Small scale has a recognized working definition as a family-owned farm that's resided on by the family, and they can manage day-to-day -day operations without outside help. It's typically four and a half hectares or 10 acres as a maximum size. And for small-scale farmers, that's manageable with a recognized exception of peak harvest times. When there's lots of things ripening and needed to be harvested all at once, a 10-acre farm's typically too big for a family. I spent my summers for years on different uncle's farms doing hay. And there was no way that as a family we could do all the hay by ourselves without the neighbors helping. But the understanding was, you come help us do hay, we go help you do hay. And that's exactly how coffee farmers work as well. They pretty much keep a tab on how many hours our family gave yours and how many hours your family gave ours in the end of the season. They settle up based on a recognized minimum day laborer's wage. So that kind of covers the fair, the direct, and the small scale. So the farmers we buy from are 10 different producer groups in five different countries. And most of those, with the exception of some fruit growers and some cane sugar growers, are coffee producers. The smallest of those producer groups would be about 700 farmer members in Peru. They typically have about 10-acre plots each, so the big side of what we purchase from. Uh, the largest producer groups we buy from would be around 3,000 farmer members in Tanzania and in Ethiopia. We don't typically buy more than about 20 to 30% of a producer group's crop, and in some cases way less than that. Like ourselves, we want them to be diversified. We don't want them to be exposed entirely on the whims of one customer. So that if we struggled or if they struggled, we're not totally reliant on one another. Mm -hmm. Can you comment about the fair trade local? I mean, I, as a consumer, I generally look for that. Yep. Um, but I've heard rumblings about the fair trade logo not always being the same. My concern is that the logo... The logo is primarily, it is focused on a product being certified. And if a product can be certified, it doesn't have in any way a statement about the company that's selling the product. And because of this, companies can make a lot of money on certain lines and be willing to lose money on fair trade lines and be perceived as very ethical while not necessarily being that. I showed you in the previous presentation Divine Chocolate Bars and Coco Camino Chocolate Bars, entirely fair trade lines from worker cooperatives. Nestle now has a two-fingered fair trade Kit Kat bar in the UK. Not the four-finger Kit Kat, it's not fair trade, but the two-finger bar is. So the challenge for a customer, if they've always looked for a logo, and the logo is the end-all, be-all, take a globally complex trade system of multiple products going into a chocolate bar and deem it fair trade or not fair trade, good or bad, based on a logo, you've got worker-owned co-ops being entirely fair trade for 10 or 15 years straight, and then you've got Nestle coming in, who for me was the reason for starting a fair trade business. They were everything I didn't want to be. It was alternative Nestle. That's what I was creating. Whatever they are, I don't want to be them. And now apparently they're ethical, because their two-finger Kit Kat says so with a logo. So at that point, a customer has to be, I hope, convulsed with a sense of, hmm, I don't know what to do now. Because if Nestle is as ethical as Divine, a West African-based farmer cooperative that actually takes a share of the profits from sales in North America, I'm living in a really messed up world. We're trying to simplify things too much. So my point is fair trade logos are a great place to start. But as with any good thing, I hope it's an evolutionary growth opportunity for any person that starts with a logo and goes beyond that, asking deeper questions, thinking more articulately about what fair trade's meaning to accomplish, 
And logos alone don't achieve the goal of the original intent of the fair trade movement, which was presentation number two, which we're not doing. So that's my little injection, I guess. Yeah? How do you determine what an actual living wage is, given uh, we, the fact that we always hear this, this plantation uh, worker in West Africa or whatever makes the equivalent of a 50 cent Canadian a day? How do we... Typical family size, cost of living, cost of production. How, how, but how do we put that into relative terms, uh, what 50 cents a day can get out of their perspective in the context? It doesn't make any sense until you're in their context. The meaning of a living wage is it makes sense for where they're living. And so it's not trying to pay them what we make, it's trying to pay them what they need, recognizing the dynamics at play there. And so living wage calculations only work when they're done on the ground in the community. No sweat apparel has been the best group for this. No Sweat Apparel, who I showed you making the clothes out of Indonesia, has had a wage calculator on their website for years. And they recognize that the typical woman working in a factory in Indonesia was the Muslim who had to take a break for Ramadan. So if they didn't have a Ramadan allowance, it couldn't be recognized as a living wage. If a subcontractor wasn't acknowledging the religious convictions of their workers and paying them a Ramadan allowance, they weren't recognizing the constraints that were upon them financially. So if living wage doesn't factor in the relevant variables to a person's context, it doesn't make sense. Any more than a minimum wage makes sense. The disparity of minimum wage across our country shows how not a living wage it is, right? And the things that you would do as a student to decide what do I need to make this year to go to school next year as a living wage is the very things you need to do as a factory or farm worker in those settings as well. I'm doing that calculation with Filipino farmers right now working with small-scale farmers with a Coffee for Peace project started by MCC, and they're for the first time starting to export really great quality coffee. They've never had a buyer before. So we're talking to them about how do you come to market with a product, and what tools can we give you so that you can understand what price you need so that you feel comfortable with what we pay you. And that's an essential discussion, or else how can you say it's fair, right? Our underlying goal to our mission is alleviating poverty. And that, for us, means what do these farming communities want to accomplish? And if we don't understand what they want to accomplish, we can't even attack anything because we don't have a measurable goal to work on. So we have totally different directives in each community based on what we're hearing from them they want to see accomplished. We're not trying to control what's going on in that community. Our main goal is pay a good price for good quality coffee and see accomplished in their community what they want to see accomplished with that money. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. So our approach to business has been primarily this, our trading values. We focus on farmers. We value high quality because we know that people will buy an ethical sounding product the first time, but if the quality is not right there, they won't buy it again. So they've got to buy great quality product that's ethical as well. And we need to operate with transparency and accountability so people feel comfortable. But if they've got cynicism or skepticism, we can validate, I hear where you're coming from, what do you need to find out? How can we answer your questions? If you go to our website, you find everything built around these three points when you click on direct fair trade. And under transparency, you can download a document that has our entire importing history for 14 years of business. It's sectioned by country. There's Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, Tanzania, Ethiopia. Every container of product we bought from every country, how much we paid, and what percentage of what we paid made it to farmers. We don't know of any other company doing that in trade. We want people to know how much is actually getting to the farmer members, and we maintain that if you don't know, how can you say it's fair? Because how much was paid doesn't necessarily mean how much went to the farmers. 
and the current flow FLO system that has product certification but doesn't look at companies being fair trade has no mechanism or mandate to measure efficiency of disbursement of funds paid. So you pay the fair trade minimum price, typically a broker who then sells it to a roaster, and at that point, people can verify the fair trade minimum price was paid. Where did it go? How much did the farmer get? We don't know. We don't even have to answer the question. It's like, really? That's the whole point of fair trade. Like, the wheels just fell off the wagon, and I'm just getting in. Like, you didn't even give me a ride here. And that's, it's a huge gap that's non-existent. It's not even being addressed. And I've talked to several roasters on the West Coast who on the shelf are seen as our competition. They all buy from, from brokers. All their products are fair trade certified with logos on them. What's your intent for doing coffee roasting, I'll say? Fair trade, helping the farmers, paying them well. Good, me too. How do you get your coffee? Through a broker. Well, that violates the whole original premise of fair trade, I tell them. So why don't you do fair trade the way it's supposed to be done? Well, it's impossible logistically to do what you guys do at level ground. There's so much work and effort, so much cash flow challenges, I just can't be bothered with doing that. I just pay the broker the few pennies on the dollar for him handling the product and it eases up my cash flow. Okay. So your broker buys it. Yeah. How do you know they're getting, uh, how do you know what they're paying? Well, they tell me how much they pay the co-op that they buy from. Okay. How much do the farmer members of the co-op get? I have no idea. But it's flow certified product. Is there no measure? Is there no question mark? Is there no expectance of efficiency? No. So you have no idea how much your broker actually got to the farmers. No. So how can you sell this fair trade? It's <laughs> like, ah, really? Like, that's the whole point. And this is continually what's happening. And I try to drill down and I ask questions of guys who really believe they're in the business for the right reasons. And they've got no ability to be asked questions and come up with answers. Look for the logo becomes their, in that's their entire education. Guys, look for the logo. My talk's done. If you find the logo, Nestle will keep you happy at that point. And if Nestle can keep us happy, why did we conceive of and push forward this movement of alternative trade? 10,000 Villages sells over 5,000 different handicraft items. There's not yet been a logo or a price payment that's fair model constructed for one handicraft product in the world. Nothing that 10,000 Villages sells that's handicraft or handmade has a sticker on it. And, and so, what? They're not legit? They don't have the logo? Well, come on. They're 65 years doing only fair trade. Can't there be something more than just a logo being there or not being there? And that's what we've got to get people thinking about. That's why I leave my family and come to minus 20 Lethbridge. <laughs> Our goal, in a simple form, is that between the farming community and the consuming community, we're a puzzle piece that, that connects the two together. So that when a story is told of a farmer, when impact studies are done on the ground, people can look at our website, ask questions of our staff, read the package, and go, I get it. I buy this product. It affects farmers in this community. Community, here's a representative farmer from that community. This is how my choice affects that person's life. Don't a lot of fair trade coffees are sold without telling you what country the coffees are from? A lot of fair trade coffees are sold as blends, not even telling you what countries are represented. No stories, no data, no traceability. How does that champion the original cause of Francisco and the Mexican farmers teaming up with people in the Netherlands saying, we want to get rid of brokers and get a direct relationship going? In reality, it's a lot of different steps of, of trading and moving of product and cupping and quality control. And through the bulk of that process, it basically is the co-op owning or the producer group owning the coffee until at which point we agree to buy based on that 300 gram sample. 
and we purchase it and it's ours through the whole transit process to the Port of Vancouver and to our warehouse and roasting facility. General premise, like we've talked about a little bit, is that fair trade is about dialogue, transparency and respect. That's a working, globally recognized and approved definition by every fair trade body that's out there. But unfortunately, consumers have had the upper hand rather than farmers and producers. And so consumers run largely on fear, looking for cheap prices, and, and justified skepticism. How can I know money actually got to the farmer? And I'd be asking the same questions if product only had a logo on it. And so transparency is, is what I'm really looking for as a, as a cynical consumer. And so you deploy auditors who cost $4,000 a year per producer group to audit a group as being certified fair trade for the logo to be a possibility at the end of the trade chain. And basically, an afraid public, concerned whether or not they actually should be feeling good when they drink their coffee or not, or eating their chocolate bar. I want to feel good, but I'm not sure if I can yet. I need to deploy an auditor. <laughs> and to deploy an auditor, I'm going to ask for it, because I'll be skeptical, and now the farmer group has to come up with $4,000 a year to be audited. And they have to be wholly committed to fair trade for fair trade certification of a product. There's no dialogue needed. There's no respect needed. We just need transparency. And when auditors replace relationships, you don't have what fair trade was intended to be. Auditing's good, but it can't be the focus. You see, you can audit for certified organic. We have a certified organic food manufacturing facility. You can audit for did good things happen or did bad things happen here. But you can't measure social good and social bad the way you can measure did pesticides get used or not get used. You can measure one very concretely. You can't with the other. That's like having a person sit down with you and your kid and say, I'm going to decide in the next 30 minutes whether you have a healthy relationship or not. I'm going to say you've got an approved parent-child relationship or a disapproved parent-child relationship. And expect that an outsider can come in and get it all. Now think of us buying from 3,000 farming families in one region and try to audit that. How? It's going to be hard. And people want it reduced to simplicity, so it's just look for a logo. And it doesn't even come close to embodying what's really going on there. So, some producer profiles. These are the Bedoyas. A daughter and a son. Daughter still living at home. Typical family situation is that the elementary school and the equivalent of our middle school are within walking distance for most farming families in Colombia. If you want to go beyond that, you're going to need quite a bit more money for tuition and books and uniforms. And you need to have an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent alive in the city where the high school is so that you can live with them during the week and have money for tuition and attend high school in the big city. And then on the weekend, you can come home and live with your family on the farm. But if you don't have access to a place to live, you won't get past grade six or seven equivalency. Well, in the case of their son, Francisco, he got to join into a Femi Cafe program. It's a nonprofit society we founded in Colombia in partnership with the Farming Cooperative, and it funds scholarships for kids in high school and university to access it who wouldn't otherwise be able to. So he's a pharmacist now. There's engineers, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's agronomists, because we've been partnering in Colombia since we started 14 years ago. So there's dozens of kids coming out through an educational system which is well put together if you've got money to access it. <coughs> So, that's Colombia. The Montanos are a representative family in Bolivia. <coughs> a husband and wife. He was actually a slave owned by a Spanish colonizer and got his freedom in an acre of land when he got married. They had a few kids. <laughs> and grandkids. And they process coffee, very high quality, right on their facility, right from a, a freshly picked red cherry 
through to a green coffee bean ready to roast. All the value-added process done right on site. And they do it for 14 other neighboring families who are living equally isolated around them. And we buy coffee directly from them as a group, along with another stretched out group around that same area. And we've done some special development projects with them specifically to fund different equipment they needed for higher quality coffee. And they're starting to win awards as some of the top four, top five cups in all of the country graded against other Bolivian coffees, which gets them again from us and from others way better prices. Uh, <clears throat> a family in Peru. We have three staff who just came back from Peru. And so if you go to our website at levelground.com, you'll get a lot of stories about Peru. A lot of videos and, and uh, photos coming up as our staff start downloading all the information from spending a week there. <clears throat> Helena and Adam live in Tanzania. I visited their farm. We've brought back different pieces of information to them. We pay all staff whose faces and stories and photos we use for the rights to use that. And on this visit, we were coming back to pay them for the use of Helena's photo and story that she'd agreed to on the previous visit. We'd done different cafe ad campaigns. We brought back them the best of all the different ads and posters that they could have them at their home as well. It's pretty cool to see the response of a family when they see that you're selling their product using their names and their stories. Adam is also a watch repairman, hence a watch on each wrist. <laughs> I talked about Kibete earlier in the previous slide as a coffee farmer with some daughters and a wife working on being an auto mechanic, and that's a bit of his story repeated there. So for us, when we sell product, we're trying to connect consumers back to people like this who are representatives of the hundreds or even thousands of farming families in that community that we buy from. A bit about quality. I think it's critical for us to realize that when farmers are handling their product and they get paid well for good quality product, they connect the dots very, very clearly. And we pay for quality. We want to have the best possible cut quality we can, and we want to pay the best possible price for that, and for it to be clear to the farming community what we expect and what they get in return, so that it's mutually beneficial. So, a bit of stuff about coffee quality harvested by hand. These are red cherries being sold at the co-op station in Sadama in Ethiopia. Here we're going to have farmers washing coffee after it's depulped. The coffee after it's depulped sits in a water bath for about a day. Some positive bacterial activity goes on called fermentation. And then workers at the co-op do this, washing the coffee in a trough. You see yellow rows in the back? Those are raised beds of drying coffee after it's been washed. So a lot of farmers are getting paid twice in this regard, especially the ones that live close to the co-op structure. They get paid for the beans that they bring in, and then they get hired on as day laborers at the processing plant run by the co-op, where they get to be part of the depulping, the washing, and the sorting of their own beans and their neighbors' beans. So part of what goes to the co-op actually comes back to the farmers themselves as workers on site. So there's the washed beans ready to be dried. Depending on the country, it could be on a raised platform like this with a mobile roof on wheels, which is often the case in places like Colombia. Or it's out in the sun like this where you're not expecting rain and farmers are picking through it. You're looking for chipped, broken, discolored, smaller-sized beans, which will be set aside and sold at lower prices. In countries like Colombia with a very established coffee culture, they have nine recognized different grades of export quality coffee. Everyone fetches a different price. <coughs> hand sorting parchment. So parchment is coffee that's a green bean, but it's not ready to be roasted yet because it's got around it a paper housing or shell. Think of a peanut when you pop it out of the shell and it's got a bit of a papery filament on the outside. That's what parchment coffee feels like. It's really, when it's properly dried, it's really crunchy sounding in your hand when you rub it. 
And after that crunchy sounding parchment shell comes off, then you get out from inside the green unroasted bean, which is ready to be roasted. You start thinking about every bean being touched before it got to you, to be sorted through. In Tanzania, there's 150 women who hand sort, sitting in, sit, they get to sit on the floor or on benches or in chairs, they've got a host of different postures they can choose, and there's 150 to 200 women at a time for half a year during harvest, just sorting green beans. And in this big warehouse where they work, they process in their year 100 shipping containers of coffee beans. Every bean gets touched by hand. Every single bean, 100 shipping containers, like, what are that, 40 million pounds. And we partnered with them since we started in 2006, funding uh, health care access in their region. We buy about five containers. This year, it'll be six containers. Every year, we've added one. 2006 was one container. 2007 was two. This year is going to be six containers of coffee. So we're buying 6% of their throughput. The other 94% goes to other buyers, none of whom are fair trade. So we take the best quality beans, pay the best quality price. This year, in our sixth year of partnership, we're funding the total health care access for all those women and their, and their family members, which totals 675 people. And my question is, what if the other 94 containers bought by other buyers had the same direct fair trade premium attached that we do? What would happen in the community if 100% of the buyers stepped up and led with values? It would totally revolutionize the whole region. We're just buying such a small share of what's going through there, and it's health care access, for almost 700 people now. So coffee cupping. When you cup coffee, you have a certain temperature of water, a certain ratio of grounds to water. Coffee has to be very lightly roasted. From the Specialty Coffee Association, you have to have certain color discs. Everyone's graded on different color measures called agtron values. You roast to a very light color, a very low agtron value, because you get the most defects, which is what you're looking for in cupping. You're looking for problems you get the most defects from a light roasted coffee. When you go to sell that coffee, you'll roast it much darker, possibly, but you're looking for the defects when you're roasting. The grounds stay in the cup. If it's done properly in cupping, they'll settle to the bottom. You slurp it sideways out of the side of your spoon and you want to get a lot of air in with it as possible. You're not swallowing it. And you're just tasting. You're looking for defects. You're looking for acidity and different taints. And cupping with farmers is the best, because you actually get to, with them, taste their coffee. And when farmers can taste their own coffee, which has been rare until a few years ago, most farmers didn't have access to any decent standard of roasting equipment, they didn't really know what they were producing. This is a defect count done by our roast master, who's actually a judge on the National, National Barista Panel for Canadian Baristas, where we get, as I mentioned, I'll just go to the floor, a 350-gram sample, the, the beans on the right are the defects. Here they've been counted out, and they have different scores of defect demerits depending on what type of a defect they are. So it's not just the number of beans with a problem, because some beans have a more significant demerit count than others. The cumulative demerit count on a 350-gram sample, our standard to farmer communities, is a maximum of 12.5. I think this is a 2, what, 7.4? A 7.4, so this passes strongly. But we had a 12.8 demerit count recently on a container. So they send us the sample. That's representative of a 40,000-pound container waiting to be released at their end to come our way. We count, and it gets a 12.8 demerit count. So it just slightly fails. We don't say we don't ever want that coffee. They have to sort it again. 
And when the sorting happens and more defects come out, the defect count will probably come back to us below 10. Then we'll have taken out maybe one sack or two sacks of beans out of 300 sacks by virtue of just taking a bean at a time from here and there. And through that, we'll get the coffee we need and they'll get the price they were promised. <coughs> so that's a bit like our, what our cupping table looks like on a typical Wednesday, which we cup at. We fill up basically report cards that go back to the community so that they can see it. They keep a representative sample at their end. And they send us a representative sample. And they can go, we've never had them contest what we've said back to them. They can go back, if we say 12.8 was your defect count, they can look at theirs and go, oh, you're right, this is about a 12 and a half, 13 on our side as well. So they realized they weren't sending us a product that would pass. We've launched espresso in the last year, Tanzanian, Peruvian, and Bolivian coffees, each roasted at different temperatures, and then blended after, all at different ratios. They're not 30, 33, 33, 33 mix. And we've put it to an independent review panel based in the States. It scored 90 points, which is generally considered ready to compete. So really high-quality espresso that's available in, in stores like 10,000 Villages from us. We sell that only in beans because it needs to be ground fresh. Payment to farmers. Now, this is actually a little bit of a sideline. This is taken from notes from a coffee broker who buys coffee green and sells it to roasters. And he's talking about the challenges on his blog from Royal Coffee about what he sees happening in the market. General kind of Coles notes of a long blog that I put together. This was just written two weeks ago. So you've got rains that were supposed to end in November, like five months ago, they still haven't ended. So the flowers that were supposed to turn into cherries, they've never turned into cherries. There'll be no fruiting on the tree. If your apple blossoms just get rained on steadily for months and months and months, you won't have apples. Neither will you have coffee. Costa Rica, I think last year they put out about 1.8 million sacks for export. They're talking about this year possibly having as little as 800,000 cutting your whole national supply in half from one year to the next. These are all reasons why prices are being driven up. Different reasons in different places. In Kenya, yeah, the prices are good, but there's bad weather conditions, and it's a hard life, and the prices are unpredictable, so farmers are generally, he says, moving to the cities. Brazil is now not just the largest producer. They're also, for the first time ever, the largest consumer of coffee in the world. The U.S. is typically their biggest buyer and doesn't pay them fairly or consistently. Let's just drink it ourselves. That's going to affect price. Usually, as you know, most people who don't even follow the coffee market knows that if there's threat of a frost in Brazil, the biggest producer by far in the world, all coffee prices go up. Well, if there's a threat of thirsty Brazilians, <laughs> all coffee prices are going to go up. And there's, they're enacting national standards for higher quality. They're saying, we're not going to drink the crap anymore. Colombians drink Consumo. It's trash. Consumo is the lowest grade domestically consumed coffee. They, act, they drink stuff that should go to the instant coffee, which is the lowest of the nine grades that they put out. And Brazilians aren't going to settle for that anymore. And so they're drinking better coffee, and it drives the world price up. His conclusion after listing all these things is that coffee prices are more, li more likely to double than get cut in half, and his summary point in bold at the bottom to coffee roasters who are buying from him is raise your prices and then prepare your customers for another price raise coming soon. That's what the market's looking like. The big players, like Kraft, are moving up their prices 10 to 15% at a time right now, which is unheard of in the food industry, where usually 1 to 3% price increments are the typical adjustments. Yeah? Can you freeze beans? You can. You'll ruin them. 
Do you mean green beans or roasted beans? Yeah, it's bad for quality. Yeah, better to keep them in a light-proof package that's sealed, which is what our packages are. They always have a Ziploc at the top, and they're light-proof, and that's the two enemies of fresh coffee, is air and light. Coffee starts to taste its best five days out of the roaster. The first couple days aren't as good. And it peaks between days 5 and 15, and after that the quality starts to decrease. So we try to ship to all the 10,000 villages stores and all our other customers on a weekly basis, small orders, hope that they turn it fresh like it's bread. Keep first in, first out rules as with all fresh grocery product, and rotate it quickly so that there's always fresh supply coming in and fresh supply going out, and customers are getting the best possible coffee freshness. He's asking if the bad weather is affecting Robusta harvests as much as Arabica harvests. Arabica is specialty coffee that's better quality, and Robusta is typically a much lower price. It trades on a different market at a lower price, and uh, I can't answer that question because I don't follow Robusta markets. I'm also wondering if there's Yes. Even gas stations have moved to Arabica-only coffees in the last number of years, and their marketing is usually Arabica beans, meaning we used to not sell you Arabica beans. <laughs> <laughs> These are three different ways of buying coffee and getting money back to farmers. Conventional trade typically has a smaller total pie paid for the green beans, and only 42% of that pie actually trickling down to the farmers or members of the co-op. The fair trade, look for a logo, the product is certified approach, pays a bigger pie dollars for green beans, and of that, about 48% gets back to the farmers. The model we've been using since we started in 97 is paying, again, a bigger price. We've typically exceeded the fair trade minimum by 26% in our history. So a bigger price, again, overall paid, and a bigger portion of the pie going to farmers. Now, these are based on averages, depends on what year we look at, and it depends on which origin we look at. But this is kind of a harmonized average. The next pie chart shows, I think, a 65 as the farmer chunk. Our last year was actually closer to 71, depending on how we look at it. But 65 is kind of our in-house threshold. And then that direct fair trade premium is an additional amount that goes to that social premium that we hear from the farmers they want to see directed. And then the co-op and trader could be everything from paying farmers to value-add their own beans to getting it to port, putting it in sacks, and milling it, and all those other processes. So in terms of what does the direct fair trade premium do, as I said, in each community it's something a little different. We've talked about the scholarships in Colombia. I talked about Tanzania having 675 people accessing health care. So that's been good, because when people travel, they can ask questions and see for themselves what's going on in each of those communities. This was really rewarding to have three staff we have never traveled before go to Peru recently with no owners or managers. We didn't really give them any expectations. We said, ask lots of questions, take lots of photos, be curious, be friendly, see what happens. And um, they were blown away at the impact of the direct relationship we have. And it's been encouraging to hear back from uh, staff who are excited more than ever before about what it is our company does and they feel like they can substantiate more personally now what's going on. No, you're not supposed to be able to read this. It's a sample document that we call a letter of an intent. You can download it off our website. The first page of the letter of intent is 10 standards of fair trade that we say, as level ground, we're committed to. That's what the heading says. Level ground is committed to, and it lists the 10 fair trade standards. We update these letters of intent annually to every producer group we buy from. 
The next page of the letter of intent says, this is what we want your producer group to be committed to and what we want your farmer members of your producer group to be committed to. And on the third page, we say, these are all the containers of product we want to buy from you, the months of the coming year that we want to get them, and what price we want to pay per container. We're telling farmers a year in advance how much we intend to pay for their product. There's really no farmer around who gets that. And what we're trying to do is stabilize the market for them, give them predictability. Felix said it this way when I hung around with him in Tanzania last, you're the only buyers we have who are interested in our farmers. Which I thought pretty, this is the guy who's overseeing the 100 containers a year going out, and we're buying six of those now. He says there's no one else that's interested in this. Everyone just wants to get the best price for the best product, which sounds a lot like us in the marketplace. As typical everyday consumers, he's saying you guys are doing it different. They appreciate that. So we're maintaining that sustainability really is about long-term relationships. You want to see sustainability from an environmental standpoint, from a business standpoint, build long-term relationships that you can rely on the partnership. Through that, the farmers know what's going to happen. My joke is kind of, rather than hugging trees, hug farmers. If you can get them a sense that they're looked after and that the partnership is mutually beneficial, you're not going to walk away from them when times are tough. The weather's going to wreak havoc at times, so you're going to be there paying them what you promised. You're going to have challenges at your end, you're going to try to buffer that for them. You give them predictable orders and consistent prices, they will be stewards of the land the way they've always wanted to be. Make it stable for them. Don't tell them what to do. We tell farmers in other countries to grow organic product for us, we go out and put chemicals on our own lawns. We're very two-faced. We let tractors encircle our own city, spraying chemicals all over the place, but we want them to grow an organic mango for us somewhere else, and we don't even know if their kids can afford to go to school. And I think we have to change that approach of paternalistic agriculture that dictates what people should do so we can eat more nutritiously. We don't uphold usually those same values in our communities. Let them farm what they're farming. Give them input. Treat them fairly. Our team core values when we hire and work with staff is this. And our main goal is not finding people with good skill sets. It's finding people with good values matches. We do all our reviews on people and their compatibility reviews are based firstly not on how are you doing your tasks, it's how are your values aligning with the companies and vice versa. If values are working, we'll build your skill set if that's necessary. But if we're lacking integrity in a staff person, it doesn't really matter what their skill set is. And I found that to be such a critical part of hiring and working with new staff. So wrapping up, a few of the things that we work with is being since 2004 a zero waste facility where nothing goes to landfill. We have 13 streams of recycling. The municipality only picks up five of those. So we pay out of our pocket as a company for eight additional streams of recycling, and we make those eight additional streams of recycling that cost us money free of charge to all of our staff. They can bring any of their household recycling to work for free, and we pay for it to be taken out of the landfill. So that's things like polycystrine, which we have three different streams of for food packing, for monitor packing, and food contaminated. Things like gable top cartons, what your whipping cream or your eggnog or your chocolate milk comes in. Not pick up a bull at the curb, but we can pay to have it picked up. So those are the types of things. <coughs> we work on green commuting. So we subsidize staff to ride their bikes, carpool, or take the bus. They get 10 cents a kilometer if they ride their bike to work. They get incentives for each thing that they're willing to do. That last year translated to 67,000 kilometers fewer from lone occupant commuters in our company compostable cups to go along with our stuff for cafe supplies. So the cups you're using tonight, 
typical hot insulated cups are coated with a petroleum-based oil, which doesn't biodegrade and doesn't allow it to be compostable. These are lined with a non-GMO corn liner. And so these are totally compostable. They biodegrade in a household compost. And it's um, FSC certified forestry for the, for the paper that comes in as well. So it's tree farms growing rather than old growth producing the paper. And so if people don't have a ceramic mug or a travel mug, it's better than a throwaway cup that won't even disintegrate or break down. We've worked hard on upcycling, where we reclaim empty packages. And 10,000 Villages is one of the stores that partners with us. We've got about 100 locations across Canada that takes back our empty packages. Last year, we claimed about 67,000 empties. And these make it to a women's group called Work of Your Hand in the Philippines. And they upcycle them into handbags and purses and wallets and different value-added items. We've determined it's about half the environmental impact to them sourcing new raw materials. And it creates free-of-charge raw materials for them to take an empty Villages package and turn it into a kid's lunch kit with a Velcro opener and some handles on it or some other things. They have bios on their website of the women who are affected positively from having jobs created. This comes out of a long-term friendship with a friend. Her and I both did development work in the Philippines for a year. About 20 years ago, she never left. She stayed in the same city, still lives there. And she started working with people who lived in cemeteries and garbage dumps, completely marginalized in society. And through that, has created microcredit programs and a host of other things that have been really ingenuitive, and that's included some sewing stations for women who needed jobs. And that's what this has come about, too. She's given me bios and all the people like Sarah and such who are sewing different products in these photos. So I'll stop there. I think that kind of wraps up our time. I'm glad to stick around a few more minutes if people want to talk further. If you want to go, you're welcome to leave. If you want to stay and talk further like this in a formal setting or less formal, I'm glad to do that, too. Thanks very much for coming out tonight. Thank you, Stacey. I have a wonderful presentation filled with challenge and hope and all the wonderful things that you're doing to, to uh, make the world more sustainable and livable for, for everyone. And folks, if you're interested in being part of a, a new initiative here in, in Lethbridge, there is a small group gathering who is trying to make Lethbridge a fair trade town. Um, this is a transfer campaign with 14 cities across Canada having that designation. Currently in Alberta, Olds and Camrose have become fair trade towns, and Edmonton is currently working on it. The intention is to bring fair trade to light in our community and have the endorsement of our city council. We will need support from various sectors in our community in the way of letters and or becoming part of a steering committee. Which brings me to recruitment. We're in need of a steering committee. And uh, the meeting will be held on Monday, March 7th at 7 o'clock in the community room. Is this the community room? Here at the library. For those who are interested in becoming part of the steering committee. You'll see some blue brochures uh, floating around be handed out by uh, board members um, for 10,000 villages. And uh, also in the back is the uh, website of Transfair explaining more about the fair trade town. And uh, Knut, are we going to do the buckets now? Is that what we're going to be doing? Can we do the buckets now? Okay. We're going to take an offering. Um, we're going to equitably share this fairly between uh, SACPA and 10,000 villages to help offset the costs of, um, of this gathering and further the mission of 10,000 villages.
like to take this opportunity to thank you for coming in this awfully cold weather to hear such a message of hope and and um, sustainability in our world. And thank you for, again for all your willingness to hear about all this. So, all that, thank you very much, and have a great night. And thank you, Stacey.